Assalamu alaikum. Shalom. Hotep. I want to welcome everyone to another area of Conscious Vibes Radio. Of course, I am your host, Ramiel Ilbay. And tonight we're going to pick up where we left off on the discussion for last week dealing with the transatlantic slave trade. But as we do every week, before we get into the show topic, I want to make a couple of announcements. The first announcement I want to make is uh, I need you all to uh, help support uh, what we're doing here at Your Radio Network uh, by downloading the Your Radio Network app. Um, If you have Android, it's up and ready to go on the Android uh, phones and tablets. You go to your app store, you put in YRN, I think it's 1328, YRN 1328, if I remember correctly, um, and you download the app. That's We're going to be moving over to that platform uh, more sooner than later. So I'm encouraging everyone to do that as soon as possible. Um, you'll still be able to, as, as we move over, you'll still be able to uh, call in. We'll have a direct number, but we're moving in um, to establishing um, our own radio network uh, versus using uh, blog talk radio uh, and so on and so forth with, with, with that. So go ahead and download that information, um, and then you can start being a part of the show um, using using the app. Until then, of course, we'll still be on uh, blog talk until um, Brother uh, Anthony or Brother uh, Trent, you know, lets me know something different will be here. And then, of course, um, that announcement will come ahead of time uh, for you all to know to switch completely over to that platform. And then, of course, I will give everyone the number and so on and so forth to do that. Also, um, as a reminder, you have, remember that you have the study classes going on in each territory. Um, The study class in the Sacramento Territory is actually coming up this weekend, this Saturday. Uh, it's going to start, it starts at 3.30, I think it's 3.30 to 5.30, if I remember correctly. Um, you have the study class in the San Jose Territory that also runs biweekly as the Sacramento Territory does, but it's on Wednesday. Uh, and then you have the study class that goes on out here in the San Francisco, uh, Oakland Territory uh, that I conduct, and that's every Thursday. And so if you want to get on the email list for those shows, then you can actually send me an email at northgatebay, B-E-Y, at gmail.com, and I'll add you to that list uh, to get the reminders for all the events um, That is going on. Also, um, I have been, I'm going to be, it looks like, in San Diego in June uh, doing an event there. So those who are close to or would like to go into the San Diego territory to be a part of the event, send me an email um, or contact me on, um, on Facebook and let me know to pass your information on to the uh, more bikes who are putting on the event in San Diego. And so that will be June the 4th, 
and they haven't given me the topic they want me to speak on yet and so on and so forth. So I'll get that to you as soon as I get it. But uh, if you are thinking that you'd like to go, send me an email. We'll get you on the um, on their list and so that they'll keep you abreast of what's going on as far as time, the location, and everything. So without, without prolonging any further, let's go ahead and jump into uh, this information. One of, the, one of the reasons that we're coming back to do a part two of this is because of the amount of feedback that came from the, the first show. In the first show, if you missed it last week, please go back, listen to that, and then listen to these consecutively because we're going to completely tie the knot uh, this week and show what was going on with the transatlantic slave trade uh, and who were the people here. Last week, we we, uh, spoke about the shipbuilding industry and the fact that the shipbuilding industry even up to the Nina Pinta, was not able to accommodate a slave trade that even if you take the numbers from 12 million uh, to the most escalated number being 40 million. So I took the number 20 million, uh, you know, and just went in the middle and did the uh, mathematics from there. But the shipbuilding industry cannot sustain that. What they were attempting to tell everyone is that they converted the hull, the H-U-L, the hull of the ship, H-U-L-L, and turned turn that into chambers to hold the enslaved Africans. The ships that they were attempting to tell uh, and show everyone that they did this with is at most, in most cases, a 60-ton vessel that may be 70 70 to 80 feet, and approximately 14 to 18 feet wide, which would give you, if you even exaggerated the numbers, maybe a 700-foot square uh, space. And and those numbers that I give are usually um, gracious because it proves the point even more that it just didn't exist. Most of the ships that you will see, when you go to the museums, as uh, one of my relatives pointed out, who has seen who has seen one of the ships um, that they say was used to transport our enslaved ancestors, he said even at a young age when he seen it, it was an extremely small ship. So because of these things, we knew we know that it is not even a, a close possibility. The possibility does not exist if we're just looking at the shipbuilding industry for them to remove anywhere from 12 to 40 million people, primarily from the west coast of Africa, as they will teach it. Now, we also looked at the the weaponry that was existent in that day, the fact that the Firearms that they used were singer shooters, and at this time were basically close-range weapons because of the inaccuracy of the pellets or the balls that they were shooting. 
They were highly inaccurate, and they were based on stuffing gunpowder, which meant that you would have had a lot of time in between shots because they only fired one shot, and then you had to reload, which would require anywhere from a five to, to ten second, you know, uh, ritual or time period for them to be able to do that. And they wouldn't have had the ability to carry enough men to remove the inhabitants, even with the war that was going on. The numbers, if you're looking at it from being right in the middle of what they say, again, the lowest number that you'll generally see is about 12 million, and the highest number that you'll see generally is 40 million. So you'll find it a lot of times in between those variables. So, again, we're just dealing with 20 million. Even, but even if you deal with 12 million, it's still too many. At 20 million, you have 275 people per day for 200 years. Now, remembering that in 1650, we, saw, we showed the research that said that there was only 3,000 enslaved Africans here in 1650. In 1650, there was only 3,000. That's an important number to remember because many will try to speak about the um, people being brought here from all the way from the, from the uh, 1492. Well, in 1650, recorded, there was only 3,000. So even if you start from 1492 all the way to 1650, that's 150 years and you've only got 3,000 enslaved Africans here, as they tell it in their history at that time. We know for a fact that the transatlantic slave trade did not exist past 1850, and it actually stopped, the, the transportation stopped prior to that. But we're just going to 1650 to give round numbers. The reason that we're doing all these things is because I really want you to um, ingratiate yourself into how to teach this information to people and overcome the obstacles as they present them to you. So some of the, so we're going over these obstacles uh, and over this information and, and make sure that you're taking notes, you're taking down the websites, you're taking down the books. So from 1650 to 1850, you would have had to basically come up with your complete number. Because starting at 3,000 means if you're trying to get to a number of even 12 million, starting at 3,000, it's starting at zero. So if you're doing the math based on 12 million, if I remember correctly, 12 million at 200, um, 200 years breaks down to close to 150 per day. Now, even based on the shipping numbers, that wasn't possible. Based on the weaponry, you wouldn't have been able to go into the most dense population place on the, on the planet at that time, which would have been, Africa as a whole continent. Now, at this point in time in history, you must also remember that the west coast of Africa was fully functional and flourishing, okay, because their dark ages was not our dark ages. That was the dark ages of Europe. We have never went through a dark ages. So there has never been a time that has been written or charted that, uh, where we can uh, verify that we've ever went through or dark ages. So what they want you to believe is that as they came out of their dark ages and went into their age of rebirth, which is called the Renaissance, that they were able to muster up 
enough ships and enough manpower. Now, mind you, the manpower is important because during the Dark Ages, Europe's population was cut down about 70%. The high numbers give you about 70%. The low numbers will give you, you know, maybe 50%. So even when you get to the Middle Ages and, and so on and so forth, when they're coming out of this, now mind you, we're the ones who brought them out. Okay, so even when you're getting into the information there, you have to take it as a whole. During the time of the Renaissance, uh, what we didn't discuss is the fact that the Moors, us, actually had treaties and compacts with them where Europeans were actually paying us to use the ocean. Now, you can also find very various documents that document the historical fact that during your 14, 15, 16, 17, and 1800s, European ships were being taken and Europeans were being held, the, the Germanic tribes were being held for ransom by the Moors all over the world. Remembering that the first pirates as they call it, was the Vikings, V-I-K-I-N-G. The actual Vikings come from the Vikings, which is V-I-C-I-N-G. The Vikings were Moors. When they rewrote the history, they just took out the C, kept the K, and now called them Vikings instead of Vikings and put Europeans in that seat of power as if they were the ones who were the masters of the seas. However, that's not true. Even when you hear about the Vikings, that was going into Europe, vandalizing and taking the land uh, and doing all types of other things, they're actually speaking about us. But you have to know who the Vikings were and that there weren't any such thing as Vikings. Those Europeans didn't exist until much, 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 much later and have very little history really at all. Most of your Norse explorers and things like that that they try to paint as Vikings were not Vikings, that was us. We were the masters of the sea. Now, we also discussed the fact that in military strategy, you have to know the terrain of the place that you're taking war into. The terrain of Western Africa would be very, 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 um, they would not know that terrain. It would be very foreign to them because this is a part where they had not been engaged in military strategies. As a military strategist, anyone who, who knows about that knows that that is, would be a huge flaw is to take military, um, military might or take a war into a terrain that you do not know. In planning for a, a war, you have to understand how much food, water you need, you need to also understand the terrain and the hiking distance because that's going to make your uh, water and food um, needed variate. You know, it's, that's going to cause variations in, in that. Uh, now you also have to look at the fact that it is very, you know, it's extremely hot in that region. Could they survive? You know, we know that by the age of 15, that if they were living in Al-Kabbalan or the west coast of Africa, as we call it today, by the age of 15, they would actually die from skin cancer and so on and so forth. Uh, scientifically, these things are just are proven. 
so we went over that, uh, and we also got into quite a few of the books, uh, or some of the books, that detail what some of the early explorers said as to who was here and so on and so forth. So today what we're going to do is actually go deeper into that, into that information. And we're going to go ahead and and get into the journals of uh, Christopher, Cristobal Colon. We're going to get into some of the DNA research. We're also going to get into uh, some of the um, the archaeological findings, and we're going to get into, of course, um, more books. And let me pull up Christopher Christopher Columbus journals here. Thought I had them pulled up. Uh, let me give one second. Hmm. Okay, I have to come back to that. So we'll start with we're going to start with some of the DNA findings. Now there is a there is a uh, you can Google Mississippians and other ancient Black Americans. Mississippians and other ancient black Americans. And we're going to start with this document, and uh, it has quite a bit of information about some of the scientific discoveries dealing with the skulls and so on and so forth. And we want to start there because what we're going what you're going to have is just is different types of people who come at you about the subject matter. You're going to have the person who wants to bring up DNA. So I'm going to give you uh, the information to deal with them on because they're going to want to say that, um, you know, the DNA says this, the DNA says that, the DNA says this, and they're going to talk about the haplogroups, you know, this, this, and that, and this haplogroup, and who belongs to that haplogroup, and, you know, they're going to speak about all that. So what we're going to do is we're going to break down that argument before you ever encounter it. Now, for those who have pulled up the document, go down to page two. Now, they're going to show a reconstructed face of a teenage girl who lived in Mexico 12,000 years ago. Now, scientists nicknamed her Naya, N-A-I-A. And that's first published in January 2015, issue of the National Geographic magazine. They're showing a reconstructed face there. And the reconstructed face, if you understand the cranial um, measurements, is, is that of a person who is Negroid, as they will call it. Now, a lot of this we're going to use their terms because, again, we're deconstructing their argument before they present it to you. So this is how they uh, speak about the issue. So the, the phenotype or the facial structures is Negroid. So that's what you'll hear them say. 
Right next to that, you're going to see a reconstructed face of a young man who lived more than 11,500 years ago in a rock shelter in southeastern Brazil. She was nicknamed Luzia, originally published by the Brazilian magazine Vejo, and that's August of 1999. And these skulls, that skull also is Negroid. Now, you have what is called the Gettysburg Skull. If you go down to page three, if you're looking at the Mississippians and the other ancient black Americans, it's a PDF. I advise you to go to Google Chrome, go to your print tab, go into your print tab, and print that as a PDF, and you can save it to your computer. Now, it's called the Gettysburg Skull. It's originally found, it was, it was originally found while tilling the garden of the historic Bitter Farm in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, in 1949. It was thought to be a Civil War soldier. However, an, an analysis determined that it was a skull of a Native American man, black by nose bridge. So based on the nose bridge, they determined that this was a skull of a quote-unquote black person. Okay, and then again, we're just dealing with their terminology. Now, the, the uh, skull, per, the person whose skull it was was 22, between 22 and 25. He likely lived around 1269 to 1299 in the American Southwest. The question they ask is what, what a young man from the Southwest was doing on the East Coast in Pennsylvania was not disclosed and was not the evidence for that determination. Now, further down, now we're going to get into some of the, the, uh, the, what the scientists are saying. When they're speaking of cranial morphology of the early Americans and the Logoa, Santa Brazil, implications for the settlement of the, of the New World. This is on page four of the same document. Now, it says, comparative morphological studies of the earliest human skeletons of the New World have shown that whereas late prehistoric, recent, and present Native Americans tend to exhibit a cranial morphology similar to late and modern Northern Asians, short and wide neurocrania, high and orthogonic, orthognatic and broad faces, and relatively high and narrow orbits and noses. The earliest South Americans tend to be more similar to present Australians, Melanesians, and Sub-Saharan Africans. Narrow and long neurocrania, prognatic, low, low faces, and relatively low and broad orbits and noses. However, most of the previous studies of early American human remains were based on small and small cranial samples. Herein, we compare the largest sample of the early American skull over ever studied 18, 81 skulls of the Logoa Santa region with worldwide data sets representing global morphological variations in humans. Though three different multi, multivariate analysis, the results obtained from all the multivariate analysis confirm a close morphological affinity between the South American Polodanians and extent Australo-Melanesian groups, supporting the hypothesis that two distinct biological populations could have colonized the New World 
in the Paleocene, Paleocene transition. Now, you can do your, your research on those, and I'll spell those words for you. It's P-L-E-I-S-T-O-C-E-N-E. The other word is H-O-L-O-C-E-N-E, transitions. So you can study those to get a, a better um, understanding of what those transitions mean. Now, it says the study, this study asserts that everyone came across the, uh, the Bering Strait. Blacks are original Paleo-American first and then later the Mongols. Now, it says Asia, quote, no trans-oceanic migration is necessary to explain our findings because Paleo-Americans, American life humans, were also present in East Asia during the final Paleo-Sistine and could perfectly well have entered the new world across the Bering Strait. A final solution to this dilemma will depend, of course, on a better understanding of what happened, of what was happening in North America at the same time. Recent archaeological archaeological data can be used to support a dual occupation of the new world, either directly or indirectly. Dixon, for example, analyzed the diversity of the projectile points found in the earliest sites of North America and concluded that two different and independent cultural traditions or cultures entered the continent in the final Pleistocene, or according to Dixon, bow and arrow technology was brought to the Americas only by the second tradition because the atla was the primary hunting weapon of the first. The atl is A-T- L-A-T-L, and that is a weapon that they're speaking of for hunting. Hold on, let me bring this up. Okay, now, you go down. We're going to go to the, the study of the, where they talk about the, the, uh, the arrow, and that's on page five. It says the arrow is an arrow or spear, a throwing tool. They use leverage to achieve greater velocity in dart throwing and includes a bearing surface which allows the user to temporarily store energy during the throw. Now, it says in note, the atlas was found in ancient Africa, ancient Europe, ancient Pacific, but not in ancient China. That is at least circumstantial evidence that not everybody came across the Bering Strait. So they're telling you that the fact that this atoll was here mean, and this atoll does not exist in Asia means that everyone did not come across the Bering Strait. Now we're going to go down to page six of this same document, and it says genetic evidence for two founding populations of the Americas. Before I go forward, I want to remind everyone also that you want to ask a question during the broadcast. Please don't don't wait. Go ahead and push one, and we can get it. Uh, get it in because I want to make sure that we're having this dialogue go um, where you're get, getting your questions in the moment that you have one so that we don't pass it and so on and so forth. If you're on the chat and you, and you have a question, go ahead and type it. I'm flipping back and forth to pages uh, to get you all the information. So um, if I don't get to you right when you push the one, I will click back over to the page um, and, and get you. Now, genetic evidence for two founding populations of the Americas. Now, this is page six. For those who you came on a little bit later, 
if you Google the document, Mississippians and other ancient black Americans, PDF. This is the document we're reading from because this document has a lot of information on it. It's like 82 pages, um, and it breaks down a lot of the DNA studies. We're also going to go to uh, a couple of others to uh, give other points of reference. It says the genetic studies have consistently indicated a single common origin of Native American groups from Central and South America. However, such morphological studies have suggested a more complex mixture, whereby Northeast Asia affinities of present-day Native Americans contrast with the distinctive morphology seen in some of the earliest American skeletons, which share traits with present-day Australians, indigenous groups in Australia, Melanesia, and islands Southeast Asia. Here we analyze genome-wide data to show that some Amazonian Native Americans descended partly from a Native American founding population that carried ancestry more widely, more closely related to indigenous Australians, New Guineans, and Adamant Islanders than to any present-day Eurasians or Native Americans. The signature is not present to the extent or at all in present-day Northern and Central Americans or in 12,600-year-old 12, 12, Clovis-associated genomes, suggesting a more diverse set of founding populations of the Americas than previously accepted. Okay, so what that's telling you is that when they are looking at the populations that, based on the genome studies and the morphology of the skulls, so during when they're talking about the morphological traits of the skulls, they're getting into, over time, how the skulls reshape and so on and so forth, and how climate has a, uh, we'll call it certain variations and things like that. And then they're tracing the DNA backwards to find uh, or tracing it back to other DNA analysis where they're seeing the same morphology in skulls. So based on what they're, found, what they're finding is that the way the skulls morphed in ancient America, ancient America, that they did not morph and did not reshape the way that the present day Asians or so-called Native American skulls reshaped. The earliest skulls that they're finding here go back to the um, Papua New Guinea Islands, the um, uh, Aborigines of Australia, and certain parts of Sub-Saharan Africa. Says the United States, though it is a reasonable certainty that the African Zai Omec of Mexico were originally a part of the Zai Shang peoples of China who crossed the Bering Strait and entered the Americas. There is uncertainty as to the origins of other Africans in North America. Among these are the Seminoles of Florida, the Tishma of Western Canada, not the modern people, the Jamasi of North Florida, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, whose legendary queen, Khalifa, lent her name to the state of California the Mississippians of South Central United States. The question is, are they Australians, Polynesians who migrated north from South Central America, or are they remnants of the Zyomic who broke off as the main group headed 
south to Mexico. Now, you, on page seven, it goes into an explorer, Lewis Chorus. Lewis Chorus, 1795-1828, was a famous German-Russian painter and explorer. He was one of the first sketch artists for expedition research. Lewis Chorus was a Russian of German stock, was born in Yakutsk, now Diener Patrislav, how do we pronounce that one? Ukraine on March 27, 1795. He visited the Pacific and the west coast of North America in 1816 on board the Ruit, being attached to the capacity of artists to the Romanovs expedition under the command of Lieutenant Oxto von Kosovo, sent out to, to, for the purpose of exploring the Northwest Passage. Corus said to have painted nature as he found it. The essence of his, of his art is truth, a fresh, vigorous view of life, and an originality in, per, in portrayal. The accompanying illustrations may therefore be looked upon as a faithful represent, representing the subjects treated by the artist. After the voyage of the Ruit, Corus went to Paris where he issued a portfolio of drawings to lithographic reproduction and studied in the ateliers of, Ger- of Gerald and uh, Renault. Corus worked extensively, extensively in pastels. He documented the Ohlone people in the missions of San Francisco, California, 1816. Now, they say the native Ohlone Custodian people. Now, they, they think the Custodian C-O-S-T-A-N-O-A-N, people. That is more of an ancient name than Ohlone. So Ohlone people are also known as the Costonian, or Native American people of the central and northern California coast. When Spanish explorers and missionaries arrived in the 18th century, the Ohlone inhabited the area along the coast from San Francisco Bay through Monterey Bay to the lower Salinas Valley. At that time, they spoke a variety of languages. The Olay language belonging to the Custonian subfamily of the Uchenian language family, which itself belongs to the proposed Petunian language, Philem. The term Olone has been used in place of Custonian since the 1970s by some descending groups and by most ethnographers, historians, and writers of the popular literature. In pre-colonial times, Olone lived in more than 50 distinct landholding groups and did not view themselves as distinct group, as a distinct group. They lived by hunting, fishing, and gathering in the typical ethnographic California pattern. The members of these various bands interacted freely with one another as they built friendships and marriages, traded tools and other necessities, and partook in the cultural practices. The Ohlone people practiced the Kuksu religion. Before the, the Spanish came, the Northern California region was among the most most densely populated regions north of Mexico. However, in the late 1769 to 1830, the Spanish missions to California had a devastating effect on the Ohlone culture. The Ohlone population declined, declined steeply during this period. Now, there's a painting that he gives. It's called The Ohlone Indian by Lewis Horace, 1860. Now, if you look, you're going to see that it is distinctly, distinctly Morse. That it is completely what they're going to call Negroid in stock, 
going to look distinctly like what you would call Aborigines, certain people in um, Maruk, or what we today call um, Ethiopia, and so on and so forth. So you can look up Ohlone Indian. Ohlone is spelled O-H-L-O-N-E, Indian. So you can put in by Lewis Horus. And that is, and that will give you that painting. And then he has other paintings. Now, you can also get a book uh, called The Alone Indians. And that book has all the same information in it um, that this a PDF or website is bringing up. And he also has another pictures of Indian Tunney in Bay of San Francisco, California, engraving by Jean Augustine Franklin, 1789 to 1839, from Pitcher Voyages Around the World by Lewis Corse, 1795 to 1828. The painting, I think, is 1822. When you see the painting, you'll see that the people are naked. It's two men. One has a bow and arrow, and they are completely completely Asiatic, African, Aboriginal, distinctly that way. Now, and if you keep scrolling down in the document, the document has a plethora, a plethora of information, okay? Now, see here, we're going to go, for those who are on their computer, Google, BBC, um, and DNA reveals first uh, Americans were black. You bring that up. Actually, you can actually just Google first Americans were black. Okay, now you go to where it says the first Americans were Australians. Okay, and then we're going to go through uh, and we're going to read a little bit of this document or probably the whole thing because it's not it's not that big. And when we're thinking of the Aborigines, we want to be very clear about who they are. When we're talking, when they're saying Australian, when they're saying Aborigines, those are people who are African as we will call them today, Moors, Asiatic, okay? So you have to be very clear that they are connecting it to a people that makes more sense for how people are taught. So they're going to say that they were, the first Americans were Aborigine, they're African. They can't say that they were black because, of course, black is not a nationality. So they have to give you a group of people who you can distinctly relate to and know exactly what they look like. So on the document, it says, the first Americans descended from Australian Aborigines, according to evidence in a new BBC documentary. The program Ancient Voices, okay, that is the program, Ancient Voices shows that the dimensions of prehistoric skull found in Brazil match those of Aboriginal peoples of Australia and Melanesia. Other evidence suggests that these first Americans were later massacred by invaders from Asia, and that's the BS. You have to read through the BS because we know 
and, and you'll as you do your research, you'll we have to remember that this is birthright there. Okay, because when when you see the documentary and when you read the information, there actually is no evidence to suggest that anyone was wiped out. They just throw that in there because to keep the story going. So they shed some light, but still leave some darkness. Now, until now, Native Americans were believed to have descended from Asian ancestors who arrived over a land bridge between Siberia and Alaska and then migrated across the whole of North and South America. The land bridges was formed 11,000 years ago during the Ice Age when sea levels dropped. However, new evidence shows that these people did not arrive in an empty wilderness. Stone tools and charcoal from the site of Brazil show evidence of human habitation as long as 50,000 years ago. The site is at Sierra de Cabrera in remote northeast Brazil. This area is now inhabited by the descendants of European settlers and African slaves who arrived just 500 years ago. But cave paintings found here provided the first clue to existence of much older people. Images of giant armadillos, which died out before the last ice age, so the artists who drew them lived before even the natives who greeted the Europeans. These Asian people have facial these Asian people have facial features described as mongoloid. However, skulls dug from a death equivalent to nine thousand to twelve thousand years ago are very different. Walter Neves, an archaeologist from the University of San Paleo, has taken extensive skull measurements from dozens of skulls, including the oldest, a young woman who has been been named Lucia. Now remember we just discussed Lucia in the other document. The measurements show that Lucia was anything but mongoloid, he said. The next step was to reconstruct the face for Lucia's skull. First, a CAT scan of the skull was done to allow an accurate working model to be made. Then a forensic artist, Richard Neves, from the University of Manchester, UK, created a face for Lucia. The result was surprising. It has all the features of a Negroid face, says Dr. Neves. The skull's dimensions and facial features match most closely the native people of Australia and Melanesia. These people date back about 60,000 years and were themselves descended from the first humans who left Africa about 100,000 years ago. But how could the early Australians have traveled more than 13,500 kilometers at that time? The answer comes from a, more, from a, from a cave painting, painting this time from Kimberley a region at the northern tip of Western Australia. Here, Graham Welsh, an expert on Australian rock art, found the oldest painting of a boat everywhere in the world, anywhere in the world. Pay attention to that. They found a painting of a boat, the oldest painting of a boat, older than any other boat painting in the world. The style of the art means that it is at least 17,000 years old, but it could be up to 50,000 years old. And the crucial detail is, is the high prow of the boat. This would have been unnecessary for boats used in calm inland waters. Design suggests it was used on ocean voyage, on, on, on the open ocean, excuse me. The fantastic voyage. Archaeologists speculate that such an incredible sea voyage from Australia to Brazil would not have been undertaken knowingly by, but by accident. Just three years ago, and that's more BS, because now they're, they're trying to say that the people, of course, did it by accident. They didn't know. They were dumb, ignorant. You have to remember, you have to go through the BS to get to the jewels of the truth. 
Just three years ago, five African fishermen were caught in a storm, and a few weeks ago later were washed up on the shores of South America. Two of the fishermen died, but three made it alive. But if the first American had drifted from Australia, there were, where are their descendants now? Again, the skull suggests an answer. The shape of the skull changed between 9,000 and 7,000 years ago from being exclusively Negroid to exclusively Mongoloid. Combined with rock art evidence of increasing violence at the time, it appears that the Mongoloid people from the north invaded and wiped out the original America. The, the only evidence of any survivors comes from the Terra de Slago, the islands of the remotest southern tip of South America. The pre-European Frigans who lived there, Stone Age style, lived until this century, show hybrid skull creatures, which could have resulted from intermarrying between Mongoloid and Negroid peoples. These rituals and traditions also bear some resemblance to the ancient rock art in Brazil. Now, let me clear something up. Uh, when we are looking at, when they're speaking about the ancient Mongoloid people, okay, they are speaking about the cosine or the sign people. Now, you have to do your homework to be better equipped to read through the mess when they present it. The original inhabitants of Asia, okay, Manchuria, China, all those places there are the San people, S-A-N people. They are distinctly, distinctly Asiatic, Moorish, African. Scientifically, they were called distinctly Negroid people. What is different about them that also dispels certain other myths is that they are people who are more of a butterscotch brown complexion. The other scientific information that's available and interesting about them is that they have the genetic variations. They have there are only one or two groups that have all the genetic variations of everybody on the planet. However, they have never interbred or intermixed with anyone, so their current tribes show no amalgamation. Okay? We have a, a call caller calling in from 347-443-EXCHANGE, area code 347-EXCHANGE-443. There's Lam. There's Lam, are you there? Three four seven exchange four four three. Islam family, I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, we can hear you. It's Sharice Amadou Marcy Eel calling from Mexico, from Mexico, the New York Territory. Um, I had a Islam. question. Um, uh-huh. I have a question relating to um, you touched on uh, um, Manchuria, that area, Asia around there. Um, mm-hmm. the Ancient dynasties, such as um, uh, such as the Shang Dynasty, right? Like with Genghis Khan and um, mm-hmm. uh, those folks. During that time, they were of a darker hue than what what mm-hmm. people present day would also uh, what what people present day would attribute them to look like as well. Just like just mm-hmm. like over here. 
you know, quote unquote, whitewash the Americans. They've done so over there, pretty much every continent. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, so I'm, 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 I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on that just to, just to uh, interject that. Just because um, uh, there's a lot that, uh, as far as color, I know that it doesn't, it shouldn't necessarily matter. However, when it comes to the description, like defining someone or uh, based off of their phenotype and, 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 you know, their facial structure and, and things of that nature, mm-hmm. Um bringing to the surface how important melanin is, you know, and how they try to strip that as much as they can throughout the history. It's important to understand that as the further back you do go, the darker the history will get, literally. So um, I just wanted to introduce mm-hmm. that. Peace and love. Peace and love, indeed. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly what, you know, we're dealing with, is that when you get into your um, your land bridges and the Bering Strait, what, the way that they introduce history is that they introduce it in a way that they show that the modern people are the same people who crossed or did all these things, okay? So they introduce you to history, and else when, when they introduce you to the, the quote-unquote Middle East, which we know is just, uh, a part, an annex of, of um, Al-Kabalan or, or the continent of Africa. They introduce it and they play with your mind to the extent where they make you believe that the same people who are there today existed in ancient times, okay, or in contemporary times maybe a couple of thousand years ago. And so what happens is that when they speak about the Bering Strait, what, because most people were uneducated about the history of Asia and the Kosan and, you know, the San people, they assume that the people who are there now have looked the same for the last 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years, which is nowhere near the truth. Whether you're talking about even the Huns, um, you know, like even Attila the Hun and so on and so forth. Those people were Moors. Those were dark, dark people. Uh, when you look at uh, the, the, the Shang Dynasty, I was just speaking with um, uh, my brother uh, Trent, and we were going over the fact that when you look at the Shang Dynasty, the Shang Dynasty dialectically goes back to the Shang or Shango people of Africa and that their um, dialect and their words, their language actually tells you in the, in the names that they call themselves, tells you who they are. And so when you're looking at Shang Dynasty, you're looking at the people of the, people of the um, Eurasia of Shango. The skulls even when you look at an Asian person modernly, you will see that their features are distinctly, distinctly African, distinctly. You look at their lips. You look at their nose. It's distinctly African. 
they show that their skull is morphed, you know, for very different reasons. Um, and we, we really shouldn't always use the word morphed because if you look at the sign people who are their ancestors, you will see that their skulls have been the same for thousands of years. And those people have never intermarried with Europeans. They're, they're, now, and that's important to understand with their current, the current tribe that is now found in sub-Saharan Africa is a nomadic tribe. It has never married. But the tribe of the sign people that went into Asia thousands and thousands of years ago are the people who, when the Caucasus man or the Caucasian came off of the 51st parallel, which you now call Caucasus Mountain or the Caucasus Mounds, that is the 51st parallel, when he came down off the 51st parallel, of course he's already in Asia. He goes into Manchuria. He finds us, the Sun people, there. He begins to trade and barter with us, his, his woman. He exchanges his woman for goods because, of course, in that reason, they produced nothing. So when he exchanges his woman, he gets food, clothing, and shelter out of the exchange. Then his his woman, the Caucasus woman, now goes into Asia and begins to bear children that are now amalgamated, children. Now the children carry fatal melanin, And them even today. Scientifically, the closest person on the planet to the European genome, to a genome that matches uh, that of the carcass man, is the Asian, the modern day Asian. Their ancestors, the Kosan people, actually don't have the gene, the modern Kosan people, because they never mix with them because they are not the ones who went into China. It was a branch of them who went, okay? So when you are looking at that, uh, that information and when they're speaking of the Bering Strait stuff, you have to know the rest of the details or they got you, and that's how they do it. So even if they're talking about the first people came from the, um, the Bering Strait, that's still us. Because 7,000 years ago, 11,000 years ago, we know for a fact, scientifically, 11,000 years ago, the modern Albion did not exist 11,000 years ago. That is a scientific fact that they have been able to show that their genome does not go back and that it does not go back past 6,000 years. And so modern, the modern caucus men, the Germanic tribes, who people call Europeans and who people um, keep trying to call white, does not go back more than 6,000 years. And so that automatically means that the people who are from Manchuria or what we call Asia did not exist in ancient times in their modern phenotype. 
Now let's see here. We looked at the PBS and we looked at that. So we've seen that genetically they spoke they have been able to show that um people of African stock, whether you're talking about Melanesian, whether you're talking about um, uh, Polynesian, Alaman Islanders, uh, Aborigines, they've shown that genetically these are the first people here. So now let's look at which one is this? We're going to look at a couple of what they'll say is the ancient mysteries, some things that scientifically they've had a problem with. They're going to say they've had a problem with understanding how these things happened here. And you can find that on 10, it's called 10 Great Ancient Mysteries of North America. 10 Great Ancient Mysteries of North America. And again, you can go, if you're on Google Chrome, you can print it as a PDF, and then it automatically downloads and saves to your computer. Now, one of the things that they're having a problem with, and we're going to go through all 10 of these, um, because I want to show you some of the things that they're saying that are mysteries. Even though they're not a mystery, they present them as a mystery because they know very well exactly what has happened and who are the people here. It says that the idea that, that uh, we're on page two, where you'll see an underground cave. The ideal that there could be a 5,000-year-old underground city hidden somewhere beneath Death Valley, California. So Death Valley, California, they say it's fascinating. According to those who entered the subterranean tunnels and visited these marvelous places, visited this marvelous place, the city was once inhabited by an unknown race. Now, thousands of years later, the place had been abandoned, but the visitors saw strange mummies and curious old artifacts. Now, are you paying attention? I'm going, I'm going to read that again. And we, matter of fact, we're going to see who's paying attention. I'm not going to even tell you what's, what's interesting about what they just said. I just want someone to push one next time I come up and tell me, because I want to see that we're paying attention. So I'm going to read that paragraph again. They said that the ideal that there could be a secret 5,000-year-old underground city hidden somewhere beneath Death Valley, California, is fascinating. According to those who entered the subterranean tunnels and visited this marvelous place, the city was once inhabited by an unknown race. Now, thousands of years later, the place had been abandoned, but the visitors saw strange mummies and curious old artifacts. Now, I'm going to continue. Again, I just want to see if you're paying attention. I need someone to push one and tell me what was strange about that paragraph when I click back over. It says, before we can enter the realms of this mysterious subterranean world, we must first listen to the words of Haughty Indians who have legends describing an underground world, world few people have heard of. Now, we're not going to um, read that. I think the next, let me see. Does anyone push one? Let me, let me go. Yeah, sleeping. Everybody's sleeping. I ain't going to tell you yet. I'm going to give you a chance to think about it, see who's listening, to see who really picked apart that paragraph 
and find out what was strange that they just said. Since a few people interested in history can resist a true archaeological mystery, imagine you would suddenly find a strange, dark, odd-looking egg-shaped stone with unusual carvings and unknown origin. What would you think? This is what happened in 1872 when a couple of construction workers dug up a suspicious lump of clay near the shore of Lake Winnetonka, no, Winnipesaukee, and discovered an artifact that today is known as New England's Mystery Stone. Scientists are still finding out how this stone was made and what, per, what and for what purpose. For, furthermore, so far it has been impossible to verify the age of the stone and tell how it was carved. To make it even more interesting, the unknown creator decided to add a number of inscriptions and strange symbols, which are still open for interpretation. All right, one more time. We're going to see if anybody, oh, we got somebody that just stepped up. 310-927. There we go, 310, exchange is 927 Islam. Islam, this is uh, Antoinette from the Southern California Territory. Islam, sis, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, the thing that stood out to me about that paragraph is the fact that they said that they found mummies. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you were on Yeah, that was a big, huge flag. And also, um, since um, I know we're um, in the California area uh, territory that you're discussing, but that also brings up a question for me about the rumors of the um, what was it? The Egyptian uh, or the Kemetic uh, treasures that were supposed to be and temples that were found in the uh, Grand Canyon that were sealed off. Mhm. Indeed, and we're about to go into that too. Well, that's uh, uh, one of those mysteries. That's one of those mysteries right. that they talk about, you know. But I'm glad you caught that, where they say that they found mummies. It says you already know, sis. The only people yeah. who mummify bodies on this planet. Exactly, because that wasn't something that the uh, so-called or alleged Native Americans of current times, right. that's not a practice that mm-hmm. we did. Right, not right. at all. Not at all. Islam, this is an amazing show. Thank you so much. Islam, sis, I appreciate you chiming in. All right, we've got uh, 347. We've got Sister Reese uh, chiming back in. 347. Uh, Exchange four four three or go three four seven exchange four four three. Islam, sister Reese. Islam, Islam. Um, I just wanted to camel back really quickly off of what uh sister just spoke about. You know, um, the secrets of the Grand Canyon. Um, it's just funny because when you bringing up mummies and you know the 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 so called mystery because it's really not a mystery once you're able to studies in and and put the pieces together. You know, um. Just to piggyback off of that, well, not piggyback, camelback, because we don't deal with pork, we already know. But, um. It brought me back to, the, to um, what I was researching the other day um, regarding the Sphinx that they say that they transported from Cairo all the way over here mm-hmm. on a steamboat. Mm-hmm. That's what they said. On a little on the little steamboat they brought a, a a fifteen ton solid red granite um stone statue thing. 
And um, we said that the face was weathered, but the body was still intact. And where they claimed to find it, it was not too far from the giant um, things, you know, of, of, of Giza. It wasn't too far from there. So it's, and where, and, and it's like, it's, it's contradictory in the sense where mm-hmm. um, it was buried, you know, it was buried um, under sand. Well, not under sand, but um, it was weathered. Like the body of the, of the, the, the giant thing is weathered, but the face is all right. You know, it, well, it's up for the nose, you know, you have to, you know, kind of. Right, you, you know, they got to chip that off. <laughs> but the, the 15 ton granite sink, the face is weathered, but the body is intact. Like you can see the hieroglyph that was engraved on the, on, on the statue, on the base of the statue. And um, me, I, you know, I'm, I'm going back and I'm like, where could they possibly have gotten this outside of supposed Africa, you know, so-called Africa? And it brought back to mind the Grand Canyon. So when I started mm-hmm. doing research, I looked and I saw how it was a direct line from Memphis, where they said that it was Memphis, Egypt, where they found it, where, where they found the, um, the Granite Statue. Mm-hmm. But my, mm-hmm. my spirit, my spirit told me that to look into Memphis, Tennessee. So when I look at Memphis, mm-hmm. Tennessee, it's a direct line going from, the, from Memphis, Tennessee to the, um, the area, um, the, uh, what do you call it? The, the, um, the site that they call the Grand Canyon. Now, we already know we travel all up and down the Mississippi, you know, all, all across mm-hmm. the great continent, you know, but mm-hmm. Mississippi, that's really where we, that's really where we did our, um, our, our travels, our, tra- our highway. Our tra- right, exactly. So it's like when I'm looking and I'm seeing, I'm like, okay, the easiest way to get a 15-ton sphinx is going up the Mississippi hanging a right on the Ohio River and parking it right there in Pennsylvania, which is what they've done. Mm-hmm. That's where it's at. Mm-hmm. So, it's like, you know, when you really start getting into studies, um, not only not only looking into the um, the artifacts and the and the the, anthro- the the anthropology of it, looking to the the um, the geography of it as well, because being able to mm-hmm. trace back, you know, they're always going to look for the the, the, the the easiest route. Always, always. What they say, the shortest um, space shortest between, between point A and point B. Point a and B is a straight line. It's a straight, so, straight you know, line. Indeed. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not something that is impossible to figure out how they try and switch things around and mis- you know misconstrue things, try to distract us to get us you know to go back on to, to get us on the back to Africa movement. You know when when mm-hmm. technically we're already in Africa, we already know that it was already one landmass that separated. Um, mm-hmm. But that you know the cosmic mirror, um, aka the Atlantic Ocean. They like to play with the with the name. You get what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So I just wanted to Indeed. point that out. I definitely just wanted to point yes. that out. Yeah, I've seen that post. I'm, I'm glad you spoke on it. <laughs> Peace and love, family. Yeah, I've seen that. Peace and love. We have one more um, 
uh, caller coming in. Um, 916, the exchange is 692. Area code 916, exchange 692. Islam. Islam, can you hear me? Area code 916, exchange 692. All right, looks like you may have pushed it by accident. We want to go to 443. With the exchange 376, very code 443, exchange 376. Islam. Islam, beloved. I am Hassan Ghazi Obey at Northwest of Maxim. How are you? Islam, how's the most? I'm, I'm doing good, beloved. I was trying to catch all the broadcasts as possibly that I could tonight to just give all the family support. Just wanted to let you know that I was giving my energy uh, uh, to the family as well. Uh, trying to just check out all the broadcasts, and I just wanted to say keep up the great work for uh, what for what I'm hearing, and I'm going to uh, just keep on following. And it sounded like Mother Sharice that was just on there as well. So it's it's yeah, great to yeah, hear that that all of the great. Yeah, exactly. It's great to hear all of this your energy that is doing what it needs to do, and that's all I wanted to say. Peace and love. I appreciate you. Appreciate the energy. All right, so <clears throat> I appreciate um, everyone calling in, and I really appreciate our system, Southern Cal, and putting that, calling in to put that stamp on the fact that when they said mummies, they already told you who they were talking about. You've got to read. The word read, R-E-A-D, actually means to understand. The word read itself literally means to understand. It does not mean to enunciate a word or to glance and go, go forward. Read means to understand. So you're not reading if you're not understanding. Okay? So when they told you money, they already told you exactly who was there, that they're expecting you to not use your thinking ability. You know, they're expecting you not to do critical thinking and critical analysis as you read. You should be critically analyzing everything as you go. You should not be reading to get through a page. That will take you longer. You should have a dictionary. You should be looking at every word they use because through the words, they tell you exactly what's going on, but you will miss it if you are not really keying on, okay? So we're going to get into a couple more of these mysteries, Okay. So let's see here. Now, there's a mystery where they say there's a rock covered with undecipherable un- symbols is one of the greatest archaeological mysteries of the North America. Neither scholars nor older, older residents have been able to decipher it. Neither do they know its true origin nor purpose. It is a prehistoric code, question mark, some kind of secret message for future generations of humanity. Yakula Rock is one of the largest in the southeast, the largest petroglyph in North Carolina, located in the Caney Fork Creek Valley in Jackson County, outside of Lohi. The details of the petroglyphs formation are unknown to scientists. Yakula Rock is not an ordinary stone because it has something else, scribbling markings, dribbling, and spider lines. And these mysterious symbols can can be more than ten thousand years old. 
you have to listen to and pay attention to that because remember that they will also tell you that a lot of our language is actually uh, a reflection of our DNA coding and that by unlocking as we move into different ages and we unlock different parts of our DNA that we will be able to see, read, and understand things that are completely foreign to us now. And so that's just a side note when you're seeing it. These things are not decipherable now. It's still in your DNA because we're the ones who would have wrote all this. Now, they say that there's another thing that they say. Um, the spider rock treasure ever, ever, let me go back up. It says, has a spider rock treasure ever been found? Can someone understand ancient stone maps filled with strange, mysterious signs point to the location to this well-hidden legendary treasure? The strange rock was discovered by a man named Stewart, who was at the time working on the legendary spider rock Spanish gold burial in the Cedar Breaks country near Salt Fork of the Brazos River in Stonewall County. The spider rock map was was dug up by a group of treasure hunters in 1908. A blueprint was made of the map since mysterious rock itself has become lost. So somebody just stole it. Now we're going to go down. Let's see here. Now we're going to go down to page uh, five. And it says, did an ancient lost civilization and this is what the uh, uh, the Moabitess called in from Southern California. She was just saying that uh, did an ancient lost civilization once live in a secret underground city below the Grand Canyon? Will the mystery of a lost subterranean city ever be solved? Now, they just told you they found another one in, in California. Same thing is in California, under, underground civilization. Okay? It says, ever since an intriguing article reporting the discovery of a great underground citadel of the Grand Canyon appeared in the Arizona Gazette in 1909. Scientists have debated whether the story is true or a hoax. Several alternate history authors and researchers, among them David Hatcher Churches, believe the discovery did occur, and this is yet another archaeological cover-up. So you want to Google the Arizona Gazette in 1909, and then you just simply Google... um, uh, Egyptian remains found in the Grand Canyon. It'll come right up. Now, here's another one that says, is it possible to find evidence ancient Egyptians and Africans visited America in the past? Can the controversial Davenport, Davenport and Ponce Potok, okay, P-O-N-T-O-T-O-C, Davenport, D-A-V-E-N-P-O-R-T, and Pontotoc, P-O-N-T-O-T-O-C, Steli, S-T-E-L-E, shed light on the mystery. The Davenport Steli was unearthed in a burial mound in 1877 in Iowa. The Curios artifact is called the Davenport Calendar Steli, or the Zed Festival Tablet. It contains a carving, and listen to this, it contains a carving of the opening of the mouth ceremony, which is of Nubian Egyptian origin. Dr. Billy Sale, a Harvard scholar 
with an advocation for ancient writing, Egyptian and Libyan explorers have sailed up the Mississippi River and left the written stone tablet, the Davenport Stele. Now, this one says, this strange story of a curious, very small small mummy that was discovered in 1922 when Cecil Maine and Frank Carr were digging for gold in San Pedro Mountains about 60 miles northwest of Casper, Wyoming. The small size and the features of the ancient body indicated it could once have been a member of the hidden race of the little people living in America. Many ancient Native American legends tell of a group of beings that are commonly referred to as the little people. These small beings are sometimes said to be spirits, magicians, ferocious dwarfs, fairies, and devils, depending on the tribes, tribes, um, depending on the tribe's original folklore. Now, for those who know, I was going to put the question out there, but um, for those who know, they're talking about the pygmies. The Twa, T-W-A, Twa. Google Twa people in America. Google that. Twa, T-W-A, people in America. And watch what comes up. And the Twa are also the pygmies. Now, see how they just said that in ancient folklore of the uh, the tribes, that, the, that these people were considered spirits, magicians, for, uh, ferocious dwarfs, uh, fairies and, and uh, devils, depending on the tribe's folklore. Now, understand that when you're dealing with uh, St. Patrick's Day, they're speaking about the same people, the snakes, who were the Twa or the Pygmy people. The Twa or the Pygmy people were the same people as these Twa or Pygmy people here. And that's why they're saying, they're telling you the same story. Now, this is a, uh, a mystery dealing with Nevada. It says Nevada is full of archaeological and uh, anthropological discoveries. Antiques no one is able to explain. One of these shocking discoveries gives us evidence that man, now listen to this. One of those shocking discoveries gives us evidence that man existed in Nevada more than 200 million years ago. Nevada is full of archaeological and anthropological discoveries. Antiques. No one is able to explain. One of these shocking discoveries gives us evidence that man existed in Nevada more than 200 million years ago. In his famous book, Michael Cremo writes, on October the 8th, 1922, the American Weekly section of the New York Sun, the American, ran a prominent feature titled Mystery of the Petrified Shoe Soul, five million years old. A shoe soul, the soul of a shoe, 500 million years old, some time ago while he was prospecting for fossils in Nevada. John T. Reed, distinguished mining engineer and geologist, stopped suddenly and looked down in an utter bewilderment and amazement at a, a rock near his foot. For there, a part of the rock itself was what seemed to be a human footprint. Closer inspection showed that it was not a mark of a, hue, of a naked foot, but was apparently a shoe soil, 
soul, which had been turned into stone. The footprint was missing. The foreprint, the forepart, excuse me, the forepart was missing. But there was an outline of at least two-thirds of it. And around this outline ran a well-defined shown thread, which had, it appeared, attached the the wealth of the soul. Telling you right there that there was a shoe shoe soul soul that they found that is over, is at least 500 million years old. Now that's, as as my, as Dr. Jewel Pukum would say, that's awesome. That's pretty awesome. All right, so again, I'm going to tell you the name of that one more time, and, and, and how you can save these things is go to Google Chrome. Google Chrome on the right top uh, part of your screen is going to have those three lines where you find where you can go to your bookmarks and all that. In there it says print. When you push print, it gives you the options of how to print things. And then you can scroll down and print and push print PDF. What that does is that that takes any document that you find online. Any document that you find online can be turned into a PDF. You push print PDF, it's going to ask you to name the document. You can keep the name the same or you can change it, whatever you want to do. And then you push print or save, whatever comes up. And then it automatically would save it to your computer as a PDF, and then you can use it to show people or whatever. All right. Now, we're going to go to um, a USA article. Now, you can Google USA Discovery of Ninth Century Quranic Manuscripts. USA Discovery of Ninth Century Quranic Manuscripts. Q-U-R-A-N-I-C, Manuscripts. Just put that in and it will come up. I'll give everyone a second to find that. If you are trying to uh, get in um, to make a comment, if you if you are in the queue, push one to take yourself out of the queue. Because I see some of the lines lit up, but it looks like there were uh, people who have already uh, commented. So if you've commented, push one right now so you'll take yourself out of the queue. If you are trying to comment again, Go ahead and stay in the queue, and I will bring you back in. So I'm going to bring everyone back in as everyone is looking up that article. So 347-443, exchange, article 347, Sister Reese. Islam, did you have another comment, sis? Okay, she probably didn't. Probably just has the one on. And then we'll try the uh, 916-692, area code 916, exchange is 692, Islam. Okay. I think that person pushed it by accident also. All right, so we got the, the, um, the USA Today. Now, we're going to go down. It says, 
For centuries, it was believed that Christopher Columbus was the first man from old from old uh, continent to cross the Atlantic to the New World. But new evidence from research team from the University of Rhode Island suggests Muslim seafarers might just be the first people to have settled on the shores of America, a possibility that could rewrite history as we know it. The discovery completely took the researchers by surprise and missed Professor Evan Urisco in charge of the research team to find traces of prehistoric Native American settlements. As we have in the area for the past decades, we were not prepared to find 9th century clay pots containing ancient manuscripts written in the Arabic language, he explains. The team of researchers fell upon what could be the mass tomb of 9th century seafarers. The four skeletons that have been found on the site are in a state of advanced decomposition which could make DNA testing impossible, warns the expert. Although the teeth show premature decay, which would explain the cause of death by a poor diet or unknown illness. A number of items were also found as clothes, coins, and two scimitars, yet the remaining artifacts were in such a bad state that they were barely recognizable, as rust has destroyed any possible recognizable trace of writings on the swords and coins, and the pieces of, of cloth having rotten due to age and extreme humidity of the area. Two clay, cots, clay, clay pots were also found in a surprisingly good state, one of them containing the precious manuscripts and other mixtures of unidentified dry spices, which, when identified, could bring further proof of origin of the sea dwellers. Islamic medieval scholar Kareem Ibn Fala from the University of Massachusetts has determined that the age of the manuscripts is from the 9th century based on the Kufic script, Kufic, Kufic script of the manuscripts. Kufic, K-U-F-I-C, is the oldest cal- calligraphic form of the various Arabic scripts and consists of a modified form of the old Nabataean, Nabataean script, he explains. Kufa developed from the end of the 7th century in Kufa, Iraq, from what, which it takes its name. The discovery of Kufic script in pre-Columbus America is extremely fascinating, he adds. Byron Kent, musologist at the Smithsonian, admits the find is extremely troubling. There is no question that Arab maps were the best in the world, but none of the existing early maps demonstrates any knowledge of America, he ponders. Even though the burden of historical evidence has been against the ideal of Muslim population traveling across the Atlantic in pre-Columbus times, the expert does not dispute that Muslims could have beaten Columbus to the New World. They certainly possess the technological expertise to do so. But until now, there was no reliable evidence that they did. This discovery, however, is compelling proof that they, in fact, did. Frank and Sylvia of Willamette University and best-selling author of Four Beyond the Western Sea of the Arabs, reinterpreting claims about pre-Columbian Muslims in America, also admits the discovery is unexpected. The premise of pre-Columbian Islam in the New World is attractive, but it is so, but because it is so plausible, the navigational accomplishments of Muslims was significant indeed. 
The record confirms that they rapidly explored and colonized a substantial part of the New World by the 9th and 10th century CE. Columbus himself was clearly indebted to Muslim seafaring skills, and there's little to no doubt that Muslims had the technological expertise to have reached the New World. Muslim historian and geographer Abul, Abdul, no, Abul Hassan Ali Abin al-Hassan al-Masadi, 871-950 through 950 CE, wrote in his book, Mirage al-Duhabi, Wamadan al-Wajir, The Metals of Gold and Quarries of Jewels, that during the rule of, Muslim, of the Muslim Caliph of Spain, Abdul al-Abin Muhammad, from eight, who was born 888 to 912 CE, a Muslim navigator, Kashfash Abin Said Abin Aswad, from Cortoba, Spain, sailed from Delba, which is Palos, in 889 CE, crossed the Atlantic, reached an unknown territory, Arep, Mahula, and returned with fabulous treasures. In Al-Hamasadi's map of the world, there's a large area in the ocean of darkness and fog, which he referred to as the unknown territory, which many scholars believe to be the Americas. So they have found the writings which shows that we as Muslims had already traveled here. Okay? Now, we know for a fact that we also had other spiritual systems. That is a fact. Not everyone on the planet was Muslim. So let's see what they're saying about the Hebrew or the Hebrew script. Now you can go to an article. It's called, it's from the, um, what is this article called? It's the firm, the foundation for, uh, that's not it. Okay. You can go to the, the Firm Foundation. Okay, that's the title. It's called the Firm Foundation. And then put in after that Hebrew language slash culture in North America at eight sites. Hebrew language slash culture in North America at eight sites. See if anyone is on the lines, and then we'll get into uh, what that says. If you have any questions or want to make any comments, please, by all means, go ahead and push one. Let's have this discussion um, because I want to make sure that everyone who's on the show really has a great understanding of how to break this thing down. We want to make sure that you know how to break it down. We're going to bring back in uh, Sister Ruth at 8347, exchange 443, code 347, exchange 443 is on. I just wanted to um, hear you repeat the reference again. Okay. Let's see here. It is The Firm, F-I-R-M, The Firm Mm -hmm. Foundation. And then after that, put in Hebrew language forward slash culture in North America at eight sites. What was that culture? In 
North America. All right, happy. Thank you. Yes. All right, cool. All right, so now before we get into this or even after, I want to make sure that everyone understands how to break this stuff down. I want to know that we're providing enough evidence. If you feel like, you know, we need to do a part three or you'd like for us to do a part three to dig in and even bring more evidence out, uh, because this is easy stuff. This isn't this isn't easy evidence. This is stuff that's easy for anyone to find. That's why I'm giving these references. Uh, this uh, this isn't even books that people need. I mean, I could give a whole list of books, um, but the reason why we're going about it based on websites is because everyone has access to that. No one can have an excuse not to be able to look it up on Google because uh, everyone basically has that on the so-called smartphone. So that's why I'm not as far into the books, although I'm going to read off a list titles, a list of book titles that um, if you want, you can get and you can study and do your research from them. Um, I will give those at the end of the show. So if you are listening to the show and you're feeling like um, um, you have some questions about the information or how to interpret the information, please push one so that we can have that conversation. Now, we'll go to the Firm Foundation. We're going to um, pass up all their Book of Mormon stuff. Uh, let see here. All right, we're going to go down to the beginning of page two, the end of... Um, mm, no, we'll just go to the beginning of uh, page two, which says today. It says to make this thing bigger. It says today, nine LDS scientists have verified two stones having Hebrew inscriptions in America's heartland, thirdly validating the January first, eighteen forty-two issue of the Times and Seasons, Volume Three, Number Five, article, evidence of proof of the Book of Mormon, which records the descriptions of ancient fortifications near Newark in the county of Licking, Ohio, which are but a few of the corresponding accounts or fortifications and works of defense that have been found in the Book of Mormon and American Antiquities. But these are sufficient to show the public that the people whose history is contained in the Book of Mormon are the authors of these works. In contrast to the lack of evidence for Hebrew or Ethiopian language in Mesoamerica, many artifacts have been found in North America bearing Hebrew and other world inscriptions. These have been met with skepticism, overwhelming bias, and even contempt by archaeological and scientific communities. They had no written language was had by the Aboriginal inhabitants of North America until after the European exploration. No, they had that no written language. Now, John Wesley Powell, while at the Smithsonian, even went so far as to claim it was illegitimate to even consider any written language before Columbus. Thus, the, the vast majority of these artifacts, numbering in, in the tens of thousands, by some estimates, were summarily dismissed and pronounced as hoax by fraud or fraudulent efforts to uphold theories of the day. Many people of the late 1700s believed that the evidence from artifacts being dug from the ground supported an occupation in North America by one or more 
of the lost tribes of Israel. Until now, such artifacts are being relegated to the realm of forgeries and fakes, more often by individuals and organizations having an agenda to maintain status quo. I'm going to skip down. Uh, last sentence says, until now, there has been no verification or acceptance of any of these artifacts bearing Hebrew inscription as being ancient, authentic, or linguistically accurate. Now, it says, down, scroll down a little bit. It says, now, second independent scientific analysis of a stone having an ancient Hebrew uh, inscribed into its surface has been completed in the Americas. And where was this stone recovered? In a hot wild burial mound, in a hot wild burial mound in Ohio, 1860. In a hot wild burial Mound, M-O-U-N-D, in Ohio in 1860. Remember the ancient mound-building civilizations in a hotware burial mound. Now, it says Newark Holy Stones, the Decalogue Stone, a second validation of ancient Hebrew confirming its use in American heartland. In June and November of 1860, respected Lincoln County Newark, old Ohio surveyor, David Wirt, unearthed two stones. The first was a triangular-shaped keystone, number two, in photo above, and the second was called the Decalogue Stone, number one, encased in a sandstone sarcophagus and accompanied by a small stone bowl, nearly the size, shape of Hebrew temple ritual bowls. Says in June of 1860, highly respected Livermore County Surveyor David Woodley unearthed two stones bearing what appeared to be ancient inscriptions. The first was a triangular shaped stone or keystone, too, photo on the left, recovered from the, the bottom of a pit adjacent to extensive ancient, ancient uh, Hotwell earthworks in Newark, Ohio. The second was discovered in the presence. Of several other men during excavations of a rural mound 10 miles south of Newark. Both stones are in, inscribed on all the sides with ancient script. The second stone, called the Decalogue Stone, was encased in a sandstone sarcophagus and was accompanied by a third stone artifact, a small stone bowl, near, nearly the size of a teacup. The keystone is inscribed on all four sides with clear, legible Hebrew letters which have been translated as the holy of holies, the law of God, the king of the earth, the word of the God, the word of the Lord. The Decalogue stone, now the Decalogue stone was discovered inside the stone box inscribed with writing determined to be an ancient script now called block Hebrew or monumental Hebrew because of it being found in Jerusalem near the 4th century A.D. Biblical Archaeological Review, November, December, 1986, page 33. Upon translation, it was found to be a complete rendition of the Ten Commandments. The figure on the front is a robed man identifying as Moses. The keystone inscription translates as the Holy of Holies, the law of God, the King of the earth, the word of the Lord. The black Decalogue stone depicts a man in a full-length robe, a sash, and a Jewish temple ceremonial hat, along with the name of Moses above the image. 
The inscribed writing has been determined to be an ancient script now called Black Hebrew or Monumental Hebrew because it's, uh, yeah, it's just the same thing. Yeah, it's just yeah, same thing. So we'll skip down. Now, we'll go to the bottom of page four. It says, in September 2013, following his examination of the Decalogue Stone at the Johnson Humeric House Museum in Caucasus, Ohio, as aired on America on Earth, Scott Walter declared, geologically, I don't see any problems here that would make these things obvious hoaxes. The evidence seems clear that there is no reason to accept these as as no reason not to accept these things as genuine legitimate artifacts. The Back Creek Stone was recovered during a professional archaeological dig by John W. Emmerich of the Smithsonian Institution's Bureau of Ethnology in 1889 during his mound survey project. The inscribed stone was found in an undistributed Hotwell burial mound along the Little Tennessee River near the the mouth of Bat Creek. Additional Hotwell diagnostic artifacts recovered from the stone include bone and wood pieces and two brass bracelets whose metallurgical properties nearly match those of ancient Jews in the Levant, Israel, portions of the Mediterranean. So see Dr. Walter's presentation and analysis under petrographic analysis below at 830 time steps. So there's a video you can click on. The inscription on the stone was assumed to be Paleo-Cherokee and was subsequently published by the Smithsonian in their annual report on the Bureau of Ethnology, 1890-1891, on page 392. Now, you can Google those things. They're telling you these old, old articles. You want to Google them. You want to save it. These are things you want to have in your library. The 1964 Chicago patent attorney, Henry Ed Marks, and Hebrew linguistics expert, Dr. Cyrus Gordon, identified the writings as a form of ancient Paleo-Hebrew Judean. They discovered that the stone had been published by the Smithsonian upside down and that it was legible Hebrew once the stone was rotated 100 degrees. The inscription's translation. The stone's inscription was translated into English by several Hebrew scholars. What was the translation? For the Judeans or the Judea, a clear reference to ancient Israel. History of the Black Bat Creek Stone, a non-Mormon historian, on BTN TV. Now, those those things right there, obviously, obviously tell you that there was um, more here prior to 1492. The reason that we're dealing with again, as I said earlier in, in the. Um, Broadcast. The reason that we're dealing with it from this angle is because these are the angles that people come at you with. They want to talk about DNA evidence. So now you can talk about DNA evidence. They want to talk about ancient writings. They want to talk about all these things that a lot of times if a person has not done some research, it is hard to get past them. But the DNA evidence now tells you 
They they finally released it to the public. Never think that this things are, these things are new. Remember that you're dealing with the doctrine of discovery, and that you're dealing with the usurpation and the theft of the birthright of the of the ancient Moabite tribes. And so this is the reason why this stuff doesn't come out. We're, I'm giving it to you on the website, but most of the time, if you're not doing some sort of advanced study or studying things on purpose, you're never going to bump into it. These are not things you're going to bump into by just doing a regular Google search. These are things you have to put in certain keywords to bring them up. You have to really put in what you want to find, and then they'll automatically come up for you. But then sometimes they're at the bottom of the page, page two, page three. They're going to do everything they can to keep the birthright from getting to you, from getting to you. So you have to be clear and understand what's going on and why that is. We're going to bring in 916-424, area code 916, with the exchange 424, Islam. Islam, Islam, Brother Romeo, Sister Serena, Sacramento. Yes, hey, excellent, excellent information. Thank you so much. Uh, I, and I know everybody else, we appreciate this. Um, and due to circumstances, I'm not necessarily able at this time to keep up with the Google, but I'm listening intently. Um, well, you know, you can always go back and listen to the recording. So. Oh, I will, um, yes. Yeah. Very helpful. Um, I, what I wanted to say, cause, and, there, and I said that to say if I – I could do it. I would Google this, but let me ask you if you know, because you you've been in the San Francisco Bay Area for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Do you? Re- I recall. I know I didn't dream this up. An article that San Francisco Chronicle um, printed about something found there underground. Um, and I don't remember. I mean, like thousands of year old bones that. Um, um, and I, I can't remember the exact quote. So I guess I'm asking you: Do you recall that? It's been about a year or so, and they dug up. It was really evidence that we've been there many, many years. But they covered it back up. The article even said they they buried it back up. And this was about a year ago or so. In fact, I think Brother Howard gave, gave me a copy of the article. I have it somewhere. So I guess the one that says Indian artifact uh, treasure trove paved over by Marin County homes. That might have been the one. Well, and they uh, see the treasure they, trove coast of Newark, life dating back 4,500 years older than King Tut's tomb was discovered in Marin County, then destroyed to make way for multi-million dollar homes. Archaeologists just told the Chronicle this week. American Indian burial ground and village site so rich in history that it was dubbed the grandfather Midden was examined and categorized under a, a shroud of secrecy before construction began this month there on the $55 go. million Rose Lane development in Lakesburg. There you go. <laughs> and for all those who are uh, looking, put in San Francisco Chronicle, put in Indian Artifact Treasure Trove, paved over. That's all you got to put in, Indian Artifact Treasure Trove, paved over. Actually, I hadn't read it, but I'm just listening to you, and um, as you're telling me what it was about, I just Googled what it was about. 
and it came up. All right. <laughs> so I'm definitely going to read that because I hadn't, I actually hadn't seen it um, okay. until you just made mention of it, actually. And it looks like it's, yeah, needs to be read. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> yes. Yes, well, thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you again. Yes, it's long. Much appreciated. You're welcome. All right. Let's see here. We also have uh, 916-683, or the code 916-EXCHANGE-683. You're live. It's live. Can you hear me? Islam, area code nine one six six eight three. You're live. Islam. Islam. Yeah, this is Brother King Bay. Yes, Islam I was Brother talking King. about that article. Actually, I found oh. it because I read the Chronicle just about every day. It's it's about two years ago. In fact, I got a couple of copies of the exact article that I I gave Sabrina, Sister Sabrina one. And you funny about that. You had it all this time? Yes, I had it all this time. I picked it out and I <laughs> saved it. I said, wow, it's right down in Marin County. And yeah, I right saved it. Yeah. And what, what was funny about it, when they brought that article out, a few days later, they had the tribal leaders on the news. And once I seen who the tribal leader was, I said, oh, no wonder. They buried it. They didn't want this out because they didn't look like mm. us. Yeah. And then a few weeks later, PBS, uh, well, Channel 6 here in Sacramento Territory, they had a, uh, a show on uh, the history of the Bay. And this was way back when the Spaniards and all them was coming in here, and they were short. Everything all around the Bay Area, Marin County, you know, all of them. And the people they showed on the TV were people who looked like us. Everywhere that mm. they showed, they showed us. And this was before they infilled all the uh, the Bay. So they came right out okay. and showed that we were here. I'm going to look, um, I'm going to look it up. You know me. I'm I'm gonna look up that um matter of fact let me let me put it in my Google now. Uh, and I already saved the San Francisco article. Y'all provided me with some great research. I appreciate it. It's PBS and what was it called? History of the Bay? History of the Bay. All right, let me see if I can find that. Saving the Bay, public media, nope, Empire of the Bay. Nope. PBS. It's not coming up for me yet. I will see if I can find it, though. Um, yeah, I, I will, too. I I'll even go down here. Uh, it may be on YouTube. Here. It actually may be on YouTube. Yeah. Sometimes they throw them on there. Yeah, and plus I'll bring you a copy, of the original copy of the news article, because I kept it. <laughs> okay. That's what's Here's up. Rob. I'll, I'll, I'll yield my time. <laughs> All right. So we have area code 510 with the exchange 932. Area code 510, exchange 932. Islam. 
Islam, are you there? Uh, area code nine three two. I mean, area code five one zero. Exchange nine three two. Yes, can you hear me, please? Islam. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, yes. Can hear you. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Can you hear? Yeah, I can hear you guys. Yeah, um, oh, I just wanted to know. I just wanted to know if, if if you had it for me. I don't know if you talked about it before. Um, the uh, the character Queen Calicia of California mm-hmm. before the before the Spanish invasion was was she based on the actual character or was she mythologized uh, mythologized or was she at, on, like an actual queen of California? No, see, this is an actual individual. And so what they did is that to to change the history of who was here, they made it mythological. It's the same thing they do with most of the stories, like of Atlantis, Moon, Moria. They make it mythological so that people really don't do the history. Oh, that's just some, you know, hokey, hokey stuff and no one's really tripping. But when the Spanish came to the Californias, they was actually in search of, and that's what the one article that I read early in the show that spoke about the fact that when the Spaniards came, they were actually searching out the Amazonian queens. The uh, the, the tribe uh, that was with Khalifa, they were all Amazonian queens. It was an Amazonian uh, warrior tribe. So these are all huge uh, sisters in stature, and they were uh, uh, vigorous warriors. And so when you see them uh, writing about her, of course, like I said, they, myth- they make her mythological. Um, but you'll see that if you go to um, the state capitol, that they have the picture in there. You see when you go to the library, all these things are there. You don't put mythological stuff up in your state capitol and all this stuff because they commemorate it because they know that the Moors were the first people here. And this was a highly melanated population of people, whether you're dealing with the Custodian tribe, where you're dealing with the Fulsome um, uh, tribes and so on and so forth. It was all us, and they, and they know it. They preserve it, but they tell us it's mystery or mythological. So they were um, larger in statues of females? Yes, yes. These are those uh, sisters who, you know, may have been, um, you know, six four, six five, six six. You know, six oh, seven. Like talking about, huh? Say it again. Like that six four being like an average height. Well, I can't. I'm. I don't know the height. I just know that we. No, I'm not saying you know, Amazon like, Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just throwing height. I'm just literally throwing heights out there that deal with us in our thinking because I really don't know because I've never actually read where they really disclose yep. the height, they always just say um, huge, you know, so they could have mm-hmm. been seven feet, you know what I mean, for all I know. I just say six four, six five, six six, because when we think of a woman being that tall, we think of someone that's, she's pretty big. Right. Do you, do you, you know, see, you know, if Calipia, uh, Calipia was her actual name, or was that like the actual state of where she, like was that the actual Caliphate. For what? For, for what, what I've where read. Where was Caliphate? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no problem. No, from what I've read, um, that that was 
the uh, the attribute that she had, Queen Khalifa, a caliphate. That was her actual attribute from what I've read. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's all I really wanted to know. And that's uh, that's that story. That story always caught my entry. You know what I mean? Of course, and then uh, also the uh, supposed uh, pharaonic statues in the Grand Cane. I don't know if you went over that too, but yeah, yeah, we went over it. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right, that's all I wanted. Uh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. All right, appreciate it. It's long. All right, so I'm going to uh, give out the information for these books, and then we're going to wrap up. Some of the books that I suggest um, people pick up is um, Black Indians, The Hidden Heritage from William Lauren Katz, Black Indians, Black Indians from William Lauren Katz. There's also uh, pick up National Geographic article from May 2007. National Geographic, May 2007. It's called Jamestown, The Real Story. National Geographic, Jamestown, The Real Story. You also want to pick up a book called They Came Before Columbus by Dr. Ivan Van Sertima. S-E-R-T-I-M-A, Dr. Ivan Van Sertima. They came before Columbus. Another book is called The Chronology, The Chronology, C-H-R-O-N-O-L-O-G-Y, A Chronology of Native Americans. It says the ultimate history of North America's indigenous population. This book really is all you need. A Chronology of Native Americans, the ultimate history of North America's indigenous population. If you can get your hands on this book, this book um, just shuts everything down because it, it has the full pit, the, the old portraits and pictures in it. So when we talk about who was here, it shows you the pictures from the 1500s, the 1600s, the 1700s, and the 1800s, and it shows you uh, who the, 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 the populations were all over this country. Really, this is what you, all you need. It even, it even will show you the uh, portraits uh, and paintings of the people of um, uh, South, Central, and Mexico, or what we call America. Um, that's, that's it. That's it. So I hope everyone got what they needed out of the show. Uh, I do appreciate Everyone's participation. We had a lot of great energy, a lot of great calls. Thank you. Um, And I will see you next week. Same time, same station. Peace and love.